0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today as my guest, I have Alex Rawlings, who is the managing partner of Raw Selection. They're a specialist recruiter focusing on private equity and portfolio company executive search. Alex, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Marcus. Alex, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Marcus, and looking forward to this discussion.
0: Wonderful. Could you give us 60 seconds on your background and the type of work that you do?
1: Yeah, so as uh, Marcus uh, said in the intro, basically, we're an executive search firm. Uh, We work exclusively with private equity firms and their portfolio companies working across Europe and North America. So my background has been within executive search. I began doing very junior low-level, low-level is probably not the right term, but junior type appointments within the dental industry, and then progressed on through industrial manufacturing, and eventually just got hacked off with uh, the recruitment industry that I was, or the businesses that I'd worked in. Things could be done better. Things could be developed and processes uh, improved, and uh, and therefore struck out on my own and uh, went for the private equity industry because, to be honest, I, I really wanted to place chief exec CFOs, so a little bit ego-driven but also I wanted to do something a bit different at a more senior level and therefore uh, broke into this market. So not uh, the most glamorous of stories, no broken back things, just somebody who wanted to uh, do things a little bit different.
0: Okay, so Alex, let's talk about the different types of recruiter. So we have contingency recruiters, advertising and selection, and then search and selection. Would you mind just explaining the difference so that people who are thinking about partnering with recruiters Understand the difference uh,
1: between them. Absolutely, and I can go through and I'll go through the actual difference uh, between what the the service levels offer. But I'll give you what I'd regard as the the real difference between what that is. If you work with somebody contingent, contingency firms tend to fill anywhere between fifteen to twenty percent of their searches. If you work with a retained recruiter. There's terms like engaged or There's all sorts of different things have kind of come out now. But where there's a, a transaction, usually at the front, and then there's a set process of what's going to happen, um, you know, you work with someone like us and we're at 100%. And typically, you'll find firms uh, at the more niche and small end. I'm not talking about Russell Reynolds and those big boys. But typically, you'll find it where it's those smaller niche type businesses, you're looking at 90 to 100% of a success rate. And there's your key differentiators.
0: And and what's really important here is to understand that none of you are buying recruitment services. Uh, Anyone who goes to a recruiter has tasks that need to be done, and you need somebody to do it. So you're buying the outcome. So if you want the vacancy filled, then my strong recommendation is dig deeper into your pockets. Uh, You will save yourself a shitload of time. Because instead of dealing with 20 uh, recruitment agencies, filling your voicemail with interrupted uh, voice messages, your inbox with CVs that bear no relation, uh, or if they do, you have to sift through 400 of them, you are better served working with somebody who understands your business and works with you in partnership, rather than treating your recruiters like commodity providers, uh, who are little better than slavers in ancient Rome. Contingent recruiter, basically, they get paid if their CV gets the stamp that says, we've hired your person. And they may be one of three, five, six, twelve, twenty 12, 20 companies all trying to fill the vacancy. Advertising and selection, you pay them a certain amount of money. They run an advert, and then they sift do the sifting for you. And then you have retained search, which is headhunting. Headhunters go out. And they specifically target individuals who have a good cultural fit, who are able to do the job, uh, but also will be a good complement to your existing team. So it doesn't always work out, let's be honest, but you have a much higher probability of filling the vacancy with the right kind of candidate. All you have to do is look at the churn rates of people in your organization where you have done it rather through luck than judgment and without a systematic process or an expert in finding those sorts of people. The failure rate of executive level placements is two in five. That's the average, which means 40% of your vision is blown out the water within 12 months. So It makes a good deal of sense to work with someone who really understands your business your marketplace the competitive landscape and the types of people that uh, you're looking to uh, recruit and the outcomes that you are trying to implement is that fair? Yeah,
1: complete completely agree if you look at things and it's it's not only what happens with those processes it's but it's what when when a retain campaign is is taking taken up it's actually what happens with regards to the actual process of filling that search And it's been best explained to me kind of when I was making that transition was when you're actually beginning on that process. If you were to go out to an accountancy firm and you were to say to speak to three accountancy firms and say, look, we want you to do our books and the end of the year, whichever one's done the best um, will pay. You're not going to get the best possible books with all the information. They're not going to put the time. They're not going to put the effort in. They're not going to do the whole resourcing. They're not going to look through the whole of your books and look how you're going to save tax. They're going to do a bit of a job and then present it to you, probably give it to an office junior. Now, I do appreciate with some of the big firms that they do that. You know, is If we look at big executive search firms, you, know, you go to hydrogen struggles and your fees and the fee for an introduction is going to be below probably 100K whether that's US dollar, um, 120,000 uh, UK pounds, you're probably going to get thrown to an associate. But that's why I push people to speak to niche and, and uh, at firms. So if you look at the retain model, it's mapping out the industry. It's going after your competitors. It's looking at similar and, and like-minded industries, whether it's a manufacturing company that makes widgets. You go after all the widget manufacturers and similar companies that manufacture metallic components. You know, same with a software business, you'll look at all the similar exact competitors of software companies that are in that growth stage that are about the revenue level. And that's what's important within that process. Therefore, you will come out with a better executive that fits better. You know, on a contingent basis, you're basically hedging your bets with five or six searches and you'll probably place, you know, one or two of them. And therefore, you're not going to get the full look in the market. You're going to get somebody that probably looks great. And don't get me wrong, I've worked contingent and I've made some great introductions, but it wasn't because I mapped out the market and went through it. It was because I had the right person at the right time. And could there have been a better person? Well, you could always argue there could be a better person, but either with if you what would you rather the kind of here's the person that I know is available and on on my books, which I hate that comment, but that's contingent in a way, or would you rather have a really deep dive look into the market and approach proactively potential individuals from within the industry that are either not looking or maybe are looking.
0: What I've always taught my clients when I was in training and uh, my people on my team now is you prospect for choice. And if you're working with a retained search firm, then what they will be doing is giving you the choice of the best in the, available in the market. With contingency, they have roughly a four to twenty percent win rate. So on average, most contingent recruiters are operating closer to the four than the twenty which means that they have to play they have to work on 5 10 15 20 assignments every single month if you're paying a retainer then you have the attention of that executive search consultant so that's uh, another great reason for uh, investing in search so let's just dig a little bit deeper into the reality of what it takes to do a good search so a prospect comes to you or a client comes to you and they say, Alex, we're looking for a chief executive. What sort of briefing do you take them through in order to discover the depth and breadth of understanding that you need in order to make the right placement first time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a set process as a business that we go through, which I found that most recruitment firms um, will go over but maybe not to the, the kind of level of detail that they should. But rather than talking about you know what other firms do, let's talk about what, um, uh, what that looks like. So the first thing we're looking to understand as a business is what, what's actually going on within the organization. So firstly, what's the reasons why this, uh, this opportunity has come to fruition? What's happening within the organization? And getting a really good detail around the situation that it sits. We'll then look at the urgency level, and how do we need somebody within the next day? Do we need somebody tomorrow? Do we need somebody in maybe twelve months to kind of build that picture? And then we look at where the pain and the problems are sitting within the organisation. So it's really for us is unearthing. You know, if we're looking at a chief executive, a lot of our client or pretty much all of our clients, if it's on the portfolio side, are going to be looking to do a, tra- a transaction within three to five years, or if they've owned this business for a while potentially even shorter. So what are the potential risk factors here? What are the potential issues that are currently sitting in the business? Why are they looking to make this change? What happens? What's happened within the business? Why is this basically this opportunity come to fruition? And where does the pain sit? Where's the problems? Where's the issues? And that's what we're trying to unearth mean, kind of those first initial kind of conversation. Providing all that fits, we'll then move forward so if you tell me that you need a job filling within nine months and, you know, you're happy with your chief exec, but if we can find somebody who's who's bang on, you may hire them, we're not going to go any further probably with that conversation. You know, we'll be polite, but uh, we understand where that urgency level is there and where the pain, where the problems are, and then we'll look to progress to kind of further discussions. And, uh, uh, but I'll pause there to to break for a question.
0: How often do you find that the person looking to retain your service really understands what it is that they need from that new hire.
1: It's interesting actually because if you look at the private equity guys, then a lot of these people, you know, no disrespect to them, they're very successful in their field, but a lot of them are on the finance side and therefore when they tend to hire a chief financial officer, they tend to know what they want from the CFO for for like for coming to them and what information they need and what reporting and what structures and what all that kind of stuff. But when it actually comes to running a business, um, the very best private equity guys will tell me that they are not operators; they do not run in that business. But in order to answer your question, how often do they really know what they need? It's quite rarely. Um, do they actually know the ins and outs of the type of individual that they require to get this business to a liquidity event? And there can be a lot of scenarios where chief execs are changed out. Where, you you know, an executive said it to me, uh, I was on the phone with him yesterday, we're very close on an offer. And, he's, and he said to me, you know, 50% of private equity firms on their deals, they change the chief exec through hope that's, that it will change the business. Um, and then the other 50 percent are making a change because they need a new chief exec, and that person is not at the level that they need to grow it. So the first 50 percent is more so. If we change this individual, it will change the business, whereas you know fundamentally there may be some issues in the business. So to answer your question, I'd probably say if I took on five searches, one of them will fundamentally know the ins and outs of that company well enough. And I have to say a lot of the times that where that, that is that one, is either that partners really switched on within the business and, and really understands the operations and, and how it how it works, or they're actually an operating partner and they work, and they're an experienced chief exec and have moved into a uh, an operating partner role, which I'm happy to explain if uh, if if that
0: you know. Uh, Can you define for people who are not familiar with the term what a liquidity event
1: is? Uh, sorry, so a liquidity event is when a business takes it through to an exit process. So that's typically where it will sell to what they call a strategic, which is um, usually a big blue chip type corporation or a competing business, or they'll sell to another private equity firm. And then there's, of course, you know, where they go through IPOs in various different ways. But typically, they either sell to a competitor or big, large blue chip, or they sell to another private equity firm who'll go through another three to five years and then sell again, either to another PE firm or strategic. Of course, there's IPO, but that's not as not as common, certainly not nowadays, but certainly not within the private equity industry in the lower middle market, which is where I specialise.
0: Okay, so then can you go on to uh, describe what you mean by the operational side effects? Yeah, so
1: um, in in the states, it's usually called an operating partner. Uh, in the US, we're kind of in Europe, we're kind of taking on like a portfolio director or portfolio manager type title. Usually, and I say usually, but sometimes it isn't. But usually, that is an executive that's come from within the industry, who's been a chief executive, maybe at a couple of portfolio deals, and has sold those businesses, or is a chief exec of a really large blue chip organization, and they've decided to bring them in as a as an operating partner. Albeit that's not usually as successful, and they are proven executives that sit on and kind of manage and support the portfolio companies, and are that bridge between. The private equity firm and the portfolio company, and bringing expertise and people who understand how to run a business as a portfolio company, rather than how to run a private equity firm and grow that. And that's where we uh, we've seen a lot of businesses making that transition to bringing people on.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the kind of relationship that works really effectively between a a hiring organisation, whether it's private equity or the company itself and the retained the recruitment partner. One of the things that's struck me over the years is how reactive people are in recruitment. And what I'd like to explore is why having a close working relationship with a recruitment partner is essential so that you're never trying to fill a job in haste
1: yeah absolutely. and this is um an easy one from a, a recruitment perspective to really position and sell what we do but to come in it from a the hardest thing for for any you know for any business owner that I speak to is finding really good suppliers and is working in partnership and in tandem with them because it's fundamental for the growth of the business so whether it's a recruitment business or whether it's a um you know your software provider or it's your uh, your, your metal supplier if you if you're Manufacturing business of you know we'll go back to the widgets again, you know whatever it is the supplier base you know having a really good accountant is really good both for your end of year returns personally but also for for your business and making sure you're maximising what you're doing. So finding any good relationship and that partnership is essential for companies. And you know the amount of business owners that we speak to that are frustrated with their software provider, the customer service crap is crap. They don't get any additional support. So if you think about any problem where you've bought something even if you 're not a business owner and you're listening to this you know you've bought something and you 've had buyer's remorse or you wish you hadn't got that because that laptop isn't as good or you you're, you wish you'd bought a Mac or you wish you'd brought HP or whatever that is the fundamental reason why when you're partnering you're in a, in a really strong relationship with a search firm that it's not a master servant relationship that it is a really good communication you're actually that person is adding value now I appreciate there's some of the stuff I'm about to say, if that isn't happening, it's probably that you need to find a different search partner or you need to realign how you work with them. You know, coming back to your earlier question of those, you know, what do we ask and what do we go through? It's understanding fundamentally what the business is at. And regularly when we've asked those kind of initial questions and we go through the pain and the problems, I'm then looking at what does success look like for an organization. So if they don't mirror and they don't match, so you've got a load of pain in the business where, you know, you, let's say your procurement's shot, you're not getting the right things, your on-time delivery's really poor, your customer service levels are disastrous, but your, you know, your sales are incredible. And uh, you know the private equity guys telling me that this is what success looks like. We want to exit in three to five years, and they're missing all of these pain and these problems. Then that's our responsibility to push back and be like, okay, I suggest if you've got this issue, which are basically operational issues, then having a really strong commercial CEO is probably not where the business needs. If you've got operational issues, so it sounds like actually your chief operations officer is not doing as good a job as you'd like. And actually, we probably need a really strong operational CEO CEO to come in here and leverage that. And then if your sales are really strong, but your ops are rubbish, that's where your problem sits. Whereas a private equity firm might be, actually, we've got high sales. We need somebody who can continue and grow that. Yes, of course you do. But if that's where your key strength is as a business, you need to look at your weaknesses and build in. Your weaknesses, because clearly someone in that company is driving that sales growth, um, and you're not looking to uh, change your CEO because they're they're too good at sales. Um,
0: They are. They're going to be getting very pissed off because a lot of their time will be taken up with dealing with unhappy customers who they've got through the front door and are being let out the back door because of poor operations or poor service. Absolutely, absolutely. the, The challenge here is that as a supplier, whatever business you are in. It's incumbent on you to challenge your customer or your prospects' thinking and uh, their preconceptions and assumptions, because uh, unless you're going to just be an order taker, for which frankly you do not deserve a premium, just taking an order, hire someone off the YTS scheme uh, if it still exists. I'm showing my age now, and uh, I'm no <laughs> and the an order. For, in that case, clearly. Uh, Alex- <laughs> <laughs> That was something in Maggie Thatcher's time, so it gives you a bit of a a carbon dating on me. But all you need is a clipboard and an order form. There's no skill to that. If you're going to be a supplier who is a genuine partner to your customers, then you need to be ready to have difficult conversations. You need to be ready to say no to them. You need to be ready to tell them the cold, hard truth, knowing that they may not like to hear it. Do it respectfully, and do, but do it with the right intent. And if they don't want to follow your advice, then bluntly, it's incumbent on you to say, "You know, we're not taking that on. I don't want to be associated with a failure for lack of spine." And I think one of the challenges here is that so many people operate out of scarcity, and as a result. What they're willing to do is compromise. And in compromising, they do their customer a disservice. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And it's all about that. Again, that comes down to the fundamentals of the relationship and and choosing the right supplier, working with that. And if you're going out there looking for that, and fundamentally you want to work with the right firm, then that's what's going to get you that strong relationship. Whereas if you want that kind of what I regard as transactional type approach, then you know, you're going to get CVs on your desk, and then you're going to move on from there. But you know, there, there's two. Both people have responsibility there. You know, both the uh, the search firm to be able to turn down the business and not just chase the cash, fundamentally probably waste their time. And then also the the, uh, the actual firm business itself to actually identify what it really wants um, and how do we actually grow strategically as a business. You know, the types of deals or placements that we that we do. You know, they're not they're not low cost. Um, in consideration with you know where the market could be sat, but also the actual what happens at you know the word liquidity event, the exit event that I spoke about. You're talking millions and millions of pounds, dollars, euros, whatever it's in. So therefore, fundamentally, getting that right at the front end, spending could be 50, could be 120, could be 150k with a search firm. Fundamentally, is very small in comparison with millions and millions of pounds on an exit value. An
0: absolute pittance by comparison. One of my uh, recruitment clients cited an example a couple of years back where he placed a chief medical officer who added 330 million to the value yeah. of the business. So paying him 150 grand to find this chief medical officer is cheap as chips. I mean, it literally is pocket change. It's the, the price of the money that you would spend on biscuits in a decent boardroom over the next three years. So do not skimp. If you're going to hire, don't fall into the Dilbert trap where Dilbert walks into the uh, boss's office and he says, Dilbert, it's not true. People aren't our most important asset. They come ninth after paperclips. If you have that attitude towards your people, then frankly, you deserve to fail. The research that's just come out of Salesforce, and it, it's not mind-blowing. Um, it's, in fact, it's, it, it cannot be that obvious, really. Customer success is determined by the customer outcomes over the customer experience, plus the employee experience. And if you don't have great leadership, if you don't have great management, then chances are the resources will not be made available to the employee. The culture of the organization will not be strong. They will not all be marching to the same tune, in the same direction, towards the same outcome. And the reality is that it is tough out there. We have the pandemic. In the UK, we have Brexit. That's another 6% of our GDP. This year, we're looking at somewhere between 15 and 22% reduction in GDP. We're right at the beginning of a depression. The pandemic is not going away whatever Matt Hancock uh, weeps over on TV in terms of the uh, vaccine coming in. We've got another 12 to 18 months of this. We have the fallout from uh, the US market in terms of the confusion and the delays around the uh, handover of the presidency. We don't know what's going to happen over there. There is an awful lot going on at the moment. That means we are going to go through tough times, and you need great leadership to see us through this, and you need leaders who are looking ahead. They need to be planning three to five years in advance. Just because there's a lot of uncertainty doesn't mean you can't do the planning. And a chief executive's role is to be the totem. They are the standard bearer around which everybody else should be crowding and saying, "Okay, this is the story. This is what we are doing. This is the vision of the business. And without a strong chief executive, with a good operations and a good finance team, good marketing, good sales chances are you will become irrelevant to your customers. So if you want to grow your business, you need great people at the helm and you need a great leadership team and you need a great crew. And recruitment is fundamentally the most important function any leader and any manager has. It is your number one job. If you hire well, you onboard well, and you develop well, then miraculously, most of your management problems disappear. And part of the problem here is I don't believe that people see recruitment as the number one job of every leader. So why is that? Why is it relegated to a commodity? Why is it relegated to an interruption to their day?
1: It's not understood. And to come back, and I'll answer that question, but to come back to it, I can't remember which book I read it from, but. Book, but 90% of business problems are talent problems in disguise, which is again, it's really easy for me as a recruiter to say that because it f- fuels kind of the industry that I work in. But, you know, looking at it from both as running a business as well, when you have an organization, even as a recruiter, we say, you know, if we could just have three more of that person, five more of that person, you know, even one more of that person, we would fundamentally be stronger as a business and we'd be able to grow faster. And if we can bring the right people into the right roles and those problems they become how, how challenges of to overcome and grow uh, and those people take it upon themselves whereas when you've got the wrong types of people you can't overcome those issues you can't overcome those problems i've got a book in front of me in, in the moment i don't recommend highly the book but we can easily read about marketing you know marketing is a little bit of a mystery until you go through it and then you realize that you set up a podcast, you realize that you, you, know, you do email marketing, You know that you put adverts on Facebook, that you put adverts on LinkedIn. We can follow those actions. but When we're actually interviewing somebody, we haven't taken the same approach as business leaders on how to actually interview people. I don't know a single executive has ever had training on interviewing. Not that I've asked everyone, but I've never had anybody go to me, oh, yeah, yeah, I've had really good fundamental training on how to interview and how to select people and how to identify problems in the business. You know, there's a great book called um, uh, Who? by um, GH Smart, which is one of the best recruitment books I've ever read about creating scorecards for people about identifying gaps, about identifying areas within your business. What are the outcomes? What do you want them to succeed in? And we've built a lot of that around our vacancy take-on process and the new search. We'll go through building that out to be able to identify what a client needs. Um, And I think that is the reason why, because it's put down as a a bit of an art. Whereas actually everything is science and we've got to understand it. We aren't going to get it 100% right, but we shouldn't be at the, the, the areas of kind of 20% fail or you know, losing two out of five C-suite execs, as you mentioned earlier. We shouldn't be at that level. So therefore, fundamentally, we haven't put the time and effort in. That's one of the things I've put into the business here because of the mistakes I've made is actually having an interview process, having a selection process, having an understanding of the type of individual I need for that particular market or that particular job. And that is, I think, the reason why we haven't focused enough on what it is. We've just kind of, I'm a good interviewer because I hired Johnny and he's done that. But the last, the other five people I interviewed and took on, they were all rubbish, but Johnny was good.
0: It's really interesting that two-act, a five statistic has been around for over 18 years. right? And it hasn't shifted. It's still 40% of executive hires fail within uh, the first year. Now, that's a damning indictment of leadership because they do not invest in a, uh, a recruitment methodology that is scientific and reliable. And they don't iterate on it so that they don't learn from their previous mistakes. The other thing that baffles me is the total failure of applying the le- of either implementing exit interviews andor implementing the lessons learned. An exit interview should be where the leading candidate should tell the cold, hard, unvarnished truth and you should listen. Um, in fact, Salesforce's research points to something a parallel on this, um, which is that companies that speak to unhappy customers on a regular basis, have a six times faster product development cycle than companies that don't. You need to invite the uncomfortable conversations and the, uh, the constructive criticism of people who are unhappy. Your unhappy customers, your unhappy employees, and exiting employees. And whether they are jaded and angry and bitter or not, listen to what they have to say, because in there you will find some painful and useful truths. And always recruit better, recruit up. When someone leaves, recruit someone better than the person who has just left, which means that you have to revisit the job description and the hiring template. Don't just cut and paste it. And uh, again, I'm sure this is going to uh, cause an outcry among the HR community, but there aren't many who listen to my podcast, so I'm probably safe. But for God's sake, get HR out of the recruitment process, because they spend more of their time on the R than the H. They spend more time on resources than the human side. The reality is that um, uh, having um, human resources running your recruitment process, I think, is catastrophic in many organizations, certainly most of them. Good HR is worth their weight in gold. Don't get me wrong. They're fantastic. But good HR is like finding a unicorn because most HR has been relegated to a cheap alternative to legal advice. They spend their time on disciplinary. They spend their time on punitive stuff, on putting together contracts, on putting together policy. But this is about recruiting people for your team. And that requires a great deal of insight. And HR doesn't have the bandwidth for that. As a manager, you should be recruiting every day. You should be interviewing candidates every day. You should be building your bench every day. So that when you do have a vacancy, you've got five good candidates who all fit the profile, who meet all of your must-have requirements, have many of your nice-to-haves, none of your red flags, have already been uh, talked to about what the offer is likely to be, and have accepted the terms. And what you're looking for is the one of the five who is available, who any of them could do the job. Now, if you do that, then you're recruiting through choice. You're not recruiting reactively, and you must never compromise on recruitment, because wrong hires are the single highest cost in any business I've ever come across. I and mean, can you think of an instance where a bad hire has not been catastrophically expensive?
1: I can think of an instance where it has, and it's in private equity, and it's a company called Toys R Us. Right. And what happened to them? Uh, well, try and, get, try and find them. Fortunately, yeah. the, I can't remember the name of the giraffe, but... You can no longer. I'm pretty sure there is actually one store left, but it was bought out, and it won't be Toys R Us anymore. But yeah, you can't Very have. Perfect. Evidently, no one, no one business decision causes one thing to fail. It's an, an accumulation of decisions that cause an organisation to fall down. But you know, if you try and pinpoint it at certain things, it was Toys R Us rejection of the internet and the lack of foresight. You know, was it KKR's fault? You know, everyone's got a bit of responsibility around that, but. You know, at the end of the day, Toys R Us turned around and went, no, people love coming in our store, we'll outsource everything to Amazon. And then a load of fundamental issues also accumulated along with that. Blockbuster was the same. You know, they did a re- they did research um, and their research said that people like the opportunity to, to come into our store and, and actually touch and feel the DVD packets and read the back. Um, which is ridiculous. People like the opportunity or like the potential of bumping into a neighbor within our store. And number three, people like the um, engaging with the person behind the uh, desk and the opportunity to buy popcorn. Now, those, not verbatim, because I will have uh, paraphrased or maybe uh, got a bit of, a little bit of it wrong, but the gist of the point was there. And that was research done by Blockbuster as to why they weren't going online. And then something called Netflix came along and usurped. Uh, and now, that comes down to your fundamental top leadership people. And you made an interesting point. When an executive leaves, don't hire that same position. If you're in a growing business and you have ambition to grow, now that's stupid because every company says, oh, we want to grow by this, we want to grow by that. Yeah, fundamentally everybody in their mindset wants, but when it actually comes down to the action of it, they don't, which is why we have lifestyle businesses which fund the Ferraris and the Bentleys and the Rolls Royces of the owners. And fundamentally, the business doesn't go forward. It tends to shrink or the thermostat tends to reset. If they go to 17 million, they fall back to 15 because that's where the business is comfortable. So it's about thinking, right, this business wants to grow. This person's exiting. We've grown from, let's say, 20 million to 50 million or whatever, or maybe five to seven, whatever the, the, the change has been. The business is different now. The business has different, uh, those implemented processes, things that work. You now need somebody who's coming in at that better level. You know, if you've had a marketing executive, hire a marketing director to come in and drive that growth and take it to the next level. So yeah, fundamentally, if you've got somebody and they've left, listen to what they've said. Typically, we blame the individual that leaves that it was their fault. And then when we have somebody as successful, it was our fault for hiring them. And we brought them on and we developed them. Well, we kind of probably need to fl- to flip that around. When somebody leaves and doesn't perform, we need to take accountability for that, and that's our fault. And when somebody does perform, we need to put all the praise and all the responsibility on that individual as that will continue to grow them. But that's how I would look at that as uh, you know, making that change and making that shift um, fundamentally.
0: Well, again, I, I'm going to take this a, a step further, that not only does recruitment need to be a daily activity, for anyone in management and above. And what we should also look at is how CFOs are talent spotters. CFOs are constantly being pitched. What we should be looking at there is uh, using the CFO as a lead funnel for great salespeople. I think we're tying up the CFO with the uh, head of sales and saying, I've been approached by this individual. You should talk to him about joining our business. I think that's a really very powerful resource as well, and you've got to think outside of the box. You've got to partner up with your recruiters as well and say, "Um, this is our vision for the business. This is where we are aiming to head in 12, 24, 36 months. These are the kinds of roles that we're going to need in this period. So. We're going to home grow some of them, but what we also want is choice. So we want to augment our internal candidates with external candidates so that we're getting the best people. This is the kind of strategic relationship I would advocate with your search partner. It's not something that you just bring them in when you have a vacancy. If it were me, I would want my search partner in every quarter so I can update them in terms of where we are. Where we're headed, the obstacles that we're facing, what the competitive landscape is—I'd also want to get from them what trends they are seeing, because search firms are a wonderful resource for research. That's their stock in trade. They spend their lives researching markets and researching people. What kind of clarity of vision uh, are you able to offer your clients because of that expertise that you have in researching markets?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, and there's a fundamental. You know, if you look at the, the three fundamentals of a of a recruitment business, you've got the client side, which is that interaction, which is a lot of our um, you know, will be like with myself or one of the other client guys within the business. You've then got the the kind of interviewing function within the business, and then you've got the research functionality. And some businesses, as as you'll see, the recruitment industry is actually starting to transition a little bit, albeit very slowly, because we are very archaic as an industry. You know, people are still doing interviews on paper and filing them in boxes and sending them off to, I don't know, wherever they send these uh, uh, things to for storage. But, you know, your research side of, uh, and, and uh, there's not many firms I know that actually work on technology and have everything on the cloud, but the that's a different, different conversation. But on a, on a research basis, you know, what are we doing every day? We're speaking to your competitors. We're speaking to the candidates within those businesses that are giving us insights to what's happening, what's growing, what's moving. There's what I'd regard as the intangibles with regards to what we know. And some of that will be correct. And some of it will be false observations um, that clients and candidates and, and various other people have, have shared with us. But overall, it gives us an insight into what's happening. So that's what I'd regard as the kind of intangibles, which a client wouldn't grow their business on the back of and fundamentally change things, but it adds into their understanding of what's going on in the market, who's making shifts, when's the next Uber within your industry coming forward, and how do you put yourself at the forefront? I'm not saying that we're predicting Uber. I'm just saying that we give you a different insight because you will not be speaking to the chief executive of your competitor or a similar industry on a regular basis because we're either pitching them candidates or we're trying to get them as a candidate with those conversations. So what do we pick up on our, on our research process? We pick up how businesses are growing. So we fundamentally understand when we interview candidates at senior level, how a business has grown. You know, is this industry particularly focused on um, organic growth? Um, and that seems, seems to be where because there isn't as much of a buy and build play. And that's uh, terminology for, you know, an acquisition growth. Or is it more of a, a uh, sorry, is it more of an acquisition side? And they're actually making loads of plays and this huge opportunity here. What are the challenges that a lot of these businesses are facing? Is it all very similar? Again, it will all come down to talent, but it will all be in different areas. And where are the, you know, in the aerospace and the defense industry, who's winning the most programs, who's winning the most defense contracts and kind of what's coming through there. So there's a little bit which kind of sits maybe a little borderline with the intangibles, but I put that as tangible because we can understand how a business has grown and how a chief exec has developed that. And then obviously it comes down to the actual individual with regards to their salaries and how it sits. Uh, you know, we work everything on tech. So if you came to us and said, look, we're actually looking to appoint a chief exec, we'd be able to tell you all the chief executives um, across your industry and similar and competing, this is the typical compensation structure. And we'd even be able to break that down to, here's all the examples of the chief executives that have done exits, that have achieved businesses to grow to, to exit those companies. And also, there's also you know team sizes, who's in where, where do people sit, how much of it have they got of human capital within within their marketing team, within their sales team, within their operations team. And we build out things like that. And then we've also got, fundamentally, where do these people tend to come from as execs? You know, where are the, is there trends between the individual that you've hired as a CEO and their success and where their background and, net and, and track record has come from, which we've got to be careful on because not an A player in one business isn't always an A player in another. They are sometimes, let's say if I go and join, if I went and joined Uber three years ago and I was the VP of marketing, not knowing much, maybe not the VP of marketing because they've really pushed that really well. But let's say I was the COO of Uber, which their operations is not strong from what I've heard. They're certainly their profit isn't. So I could look really good, but I joined Uber and Uber was on its way up. So we've got to fundamentally understand who was the driving force within that business. And you can be a passenger in a business and look good but it's understanding the fundamentals of where it comes from. So there's a lot more to that, but I could go on all day with regards to research functionality, but that gives you an insight into what we know of what's going on.
0: Well, very helpful. I think it's also really important when you're working with your search partner to fundamentally understand the dynamics that go on within the leadership team and uh, looking at the strengths and weaknesses. Are you ever brought into leadership team meetings so that you can look at the dynamics, for how they work together. I think that would be a really interesting... It's not,
1: it's not something that we've done, actually. What we tend to do is speak to the PE guys, and then speak to the portfolio guys, and understand fundamentally, we can usually get a fairly good picture. And then you're looking at kind of, you know, if you want to bring things in, you go down the behavioral psychologist route and assess the business the funda- fully, rather than I would always suggest to a client, look, go with the best that you can get. If you want to go cheap, then bring me in and have me sat in a meeting and I can give you an insight into it. If you really want to take a business forward and, and grow it when you're in your due diligence phase or when you're in your, uh, in your later, um, stages of going towards your last two years towards exit, bring, bring in a behavioral psychologist spend, you know, we've got, we've got a guy who works with us, uh, a raw selection who will do that. Uh, and they will understand here's your strengths, here's your weaknesses. And this is like, a lot of business, oh, yeah, you know, we've done personality tests. I'm like, yeah, but this is like a personality test, but this is on crack. This is the huge amount of growth within a business that can happen, um, and a huge amount of understanding of each individual within a company, and therefore you know whereabouts you, uh, where you are and all of that. So uh, that's what's really key uh, from that perspective is, is again, bringing the, the, the individuals. And I agree with you on bringing in, you know, the recruiter. But sometimes I would argue that the recruiter doesn't know that well enough to be able to understand it. And there's a lot that goes on behind a business from a psychology perspective to whether that person is good or bad. And we usually get a lot of the information, if not all of it, through effective questioning would be how I'd uh, I'd bring that through. But, you know, you've got nothing to lose by going extra and and bringing us involved and and, uh, and seeing things in. uh, The more we see, the better we know. And that's why we do go out and meet with clients as well.
0: Okay, so tell me this: what What are the three questions that private equity should be asking you, but they're
1: not? Yeah, what's our um, retention rate? What's our success rate? So retention rate of of hires. So let me go into a bit more detail. So, um, um, you know, within twelve months, what percentage of those people have left? That's absolutely key. And I've actually got an ebook on this. I can send you that across and send you the link over. Um, so the retention rate of what it is, what's our success rate? So with all of our retained and we've got an engaged service as well, a 100% success. So since we established a business three and a half years ago, we've got a 100% success rate. And then question three. So those are the first two that absolutely clients need to be asking. And then question three, I think an, not enough clients care about what we do as a process and i get that because why would you you know you don't care about how the widget's been made but i think if you're looking at assessments of different firms and rather than you know the old saying of nobody ever got fired by going through for uh, by working with ibm or choosing ibm and actually, understanding what a company's process is. So, if you said to me right now, "What's your process?" I can talk you through the fourteen steps, which all we'll have steps underneath them. But the simple fourteen steps that, as a business, we go through to complete a search. Um, and I think a lot of firms typically, in in uh, even in executive search, just go. You know, we go for a just uh, really stringent process, and they'll talk about the re- reference checking. They'll talk about the X, Y, and Z of of how it operates, but they won't talk about actually how do they find the relevant executive, how do they source, what's their process of unearthing those individuals. We can all do reference checks. We can all do personality profiling testing. The hard part is not assessing the individual for, um, for for their relevance to a position. The hard part is getting in touch with those people and contacting them. And if you aren't able to, to reach out and know who those people are, then you will never be able to, uh, to even do that assessment of those individuals. So I think it's understanding fundamentally how a search firm works and the steps that they go through in order, to, uh, in order to fill a position.
0: OK, so let's go a little bit further back in the process. Designing the candidate and candidate for the role and for the outcomes that the, uh, the company intends them to deliver. What process do you go through in order to ensure that the brief that you have been given mm-hmm. is one that will deliver the outcomes, rather than just simply taking the spec?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So fundamentally, what it it comes down to uh, a lot of a lot in, a lot of things in recruitment because of what we do it comes down to effective questioning. And being able to get into that, we obviously, I'll go through the the kind of top lines, can answer this question in a a hell of a lot of detail, but you would probably need three podcasts to go through it um, to get it. So I'll give kind of top line and we can delve into more as we go through. I'm going to cover off what I'd regard as the simple ones. You know, if you speak to a recruiter, and I'm going to call recruiters, executive search headhunters, you know, it's just different titles fundamentally. But if you speak to a, a recruiter and the first thing they ask you is, what are you looking for? I'd really be concerned about that individual because there's been no conversation around anything else as an organization. We're going to ask that question, but it shouldn't be your first your first point of call. And we're talking about those assessment questions that we use, the kind of first four to understand the problems, understand the issues, we're consultants. We have recruitment consultant, whether we're called headhunter, we position ourselves close on that kind of periphery of currently of management consulting. So we've got to really understand what the situation is with regards to the business. So the, the top line questions I'll ask um, is really getting into detail with regards to the company and getting the understanding of that. And we'll have already done some research before we get onto that call. We really want to understand your perception of the company culture. And it's an interesting when I say that, is that it's your perception. Because one person's perception of a company culture is completely different to another person's. Um, and then we can really paint a picture. If I told you the company culture within this business, within raw selection, you know, you may be able to sit down with someone who sees something completely different within the organization that maybe you know I've been blindsided by and I haven't been able to understand. And then we'll go through, obviously... Well, so no, obviously, let cancel that. We'll go through what does success look like? So what are the outcomes? What do we want to achieve? Where Where does the business need to be? Now, if I say to you, I want to exit the business in five years, okay, that's great. And we want to hit 125 million target. Fantastic, right? What needs to change in the organization for that need to happen? And then we actually begin to build a picture, and you're already telling me what you need experience-wise, but I'm not going, what do you need? Well, I need a chief executive with technology, software experiences, works as a SaaS model. That's not... That's fundamentally top line stuff. I want to understand what the business needs to go through transition wise to become that organisation that you want to be. Because if you're hiring somebody with the track record of the business it's at right now, that isn't going to be what gets the business to 125 million. We're not hiring somebody at 25. We're hiring somebody for 125.
0: In effect, you're a change enablement
1: partner. Yes, I've never thought of it that from that perspective. But yes, that would work. We're understanding it's all about and, and there's a lot I said, there's a lot of detail there but if you can understand the fundamentals of what does the success look like and and what's their perception of how they get there you've got to have a lot quite a few conversations with different people in the business ideally to understand it if you can then you understand where that business needs to go uh, and you know we talk about a lot about recruitment firm oh they've changed the brief oh they've decided something different you know, there's two problems to that. One is that the first search firm hasn't understand the fundamental problems in the business. And two, the company doesn't know what it needs to do to to realise its its goals and its achievements um from there, which maybe is us not asking effective questions, but also maybe they just actually don't have a good enough awareness over the business, which again comes back to us. Should we be speaking to people in the portfolio as well as
0: P firm? If that's happening, chances are they're treating recruitment as a tactical activity rather than a strategic activity as well. Most likely. And if you're recruiting for those senior positions, then you have to be recruiting for the strategic value that they bring. The tactical stuff is the operational work on the ground that the managers need to implement in order to deliver the strategic objectives. But if they're changing the brief halfway through, then as a recruiter, you've fundamentally failed because you haven't got that clarity of their vision. You haven't got the direction. You don't understand what's really going on. And also, you probably haven't had the nerve to stand up to them and say, well, hang on a second. If you're going to achieve that, then this, this, and this needs to happen. And Because uh, the title of consultant for anybody who does experience that is a misnomer. Because you're not being a consultant. All you're doing is taking an order. And then, yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that's not serving the customer as they need to be served. And I think part of the problem here, and I've said it many times in the podcast, partners help each other to get better. Partners challenge one another. You don't let the business fail. You don't let the relationship fail either. But you have to have the ground rules that you are going to have difficult conversations, you're going to challenge them, you will end up in constructive conflict and you're allowed to fight. There's nothing wrong with having a fight uh, over stuff because that's how you get a better outcome Um, and you need the different perspectives. But if you're treating your recruiter in this master-servant type of uh, approach, then you're not really serving them well. And I think the analogy my friend Martin Lucas talks about is that you need to behave like a butler. I always use the analogy of Jeeves and Wooster. Bertie Wooster has uh, an incredible knack of finding himself in trouble of his own making. And Jeeves helps him out of it, but he's respectful and he always maintains his dignity. And sometimes they have to enter into conflict, but he always has Bertie's best interests at heart. And I think you need to think like that. There is no shame in service. It's not servitude. And that's what being a commodity provider in recruitment is. You're just another commodity that just gets thrown um, a crumb here and there in the hope that maybe you get the bone, but you don't ever get the meat. Now, what a genuine recruitment partner will do is they will challenge, they will work together on defining how that strategy can be realized. They'll even question it, they'll feed insight. And this is why regular contact with your recruiter is essential. You don't just bring them in when you have a vacancy. You need to be working with them 12, 18 months beforehand. Yes, if someone dies or leaves suddenly, then why didn't you know that they were going to leave? Dying is uh, trickier. You should have a contingency. Most organizations will have key man insurance. Why would you not invest the same level of attention to making sure that for any vital position, you've got four or five candidates lined up in the wings, in the event that something changes.
1: And it's an interesting point there. I think if if there's you know there's people sat here listening, going, okay, that's fundamentally difficult, and technically everything is. But if you have, and, and let me just try and try and get my position on on how do you get that. It's about your everyday conversations. It's about your everyday discussions. And it's not having five CVs of people that want to work for you. I mean, that's the ideal. But it's you know five really great people who are just going to wait around and work for you. Ideally, yes. But you know, is that really going to come to fruition? I don't, I don't believe so. But the, unless you're like a Google or someone else. If you have every conversation you're having is all about hiring. Every conversation that you're having with somebody, you're thinking, who's the best person there? You mentioned about the chief financial officer getting pitched all the time. You're thinking if somebody's pitching into my business, I'm thinking, okay, actually, I could be interested in hiring you. Are you in the right location? Could you be? Are you the right type of person? and it's all about thinking like that and having that kind of bench strength of people that you know are good and therefore if an opportunity arises you reach out to them and they're there it's not that you've got their CV sat on your desk from my perception marks push me back if that's if uh, if that's not what you're positioning here but it's about having a lot of conversations and then i get pushed back well alex you know you run a business you know how busy it is and i'm like yes i do and no i'm not running a 50 50- billion or 10 million or whatever, 20 million, 30 million revenue, big organization, but f- which I could argue, therefore, technically, I could actually be busier. But it's about working on your business. And are you an operator or are you an owner? And if you are owner, you are strategic and driving these initiatives. If you are operating, you need to hire someone to be doing that role, not you have to spending do all your
0: time in there. Work. I interviewed a fabulous chief executive, Michael Brody waite and uh, he said that there are four masks that most leaders wear at least one of. The one that costs you 31 hours a month is not knowing when to say no. On average, not knowing when to say no costs leaders 31 hours a month, tied up in pointless meetings, the wrong kind of meetings, too long meetings, answering questions that they shouldn't be answering, that they should be delegating. The second is hiding their unique perspective. The third is not being willing to have difficult conversations. Did you know that on average, based on his research, 70% of employees are avoiding difficult conversations within the business? The fourth one is not being committed to rigorous authenticity, so being completely honest. Um, And uh, he's a really interesting character. He was a drug addict. He went through rehab in 2002, been sober ever since. He's built three companies up. One uh, became an Inc. 500. Liquidity event, sold to uh, a large publicly listed company. And what's really interesting is one of the things that he is absolutely dead set on is we must be ready to do difficult work. And this is difficult work. And most people will shy away from it. Oh, it's too. I'm too busy. Well, you're too busy because you're not saying no. And 31 hours of your month are being taken up in total pish and tosh. You're not having difficult conversations with people, which means that you're creating the conditions for management problems to exist. You would free up time from that. You're not being rigorously authentic. Now, when he set his company up, there were five people strong. They managed to get onto TV, and they were just about to hit a spike. And um, he had to tell his people, I don't know how to be a chief executive. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. I'm just a recovering drug addict who happens to be running a five-man company that's just about to hit the curve of a hockey stick. Help me. So he went out and he got a coach and a mentor. And he went out and he got help from his people. But most uh, leaders are too spineless and too afraid. To have those rigorous, authentically uh, authentic conversations. Unfortunately, we've come to time now. Alex, what book would you recommend?
1: So, based on what you were saying um, with regards to the the kind of culture of an organisation, it's something we've implemented here. Kim, I think it's Kim Scott. She used to be the chief exec or senior leader within Google and Twitter, um, and it's Radical Candor. A really amazing book. It's hard at the start. Keep persevering with it, and then there's kind of it all links in at the end uh, to get through. But highly recommend people read that and bring that into their business.
0: Excellent. And Who by G.H. Smart. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back in time, and you can advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What one bit of advice would you give 23-year-old Alex that you know he would have probably ignored?
1: Pay more risks. Which probably maybe a bit of a backwards from other people, but, you know, uh, there's, we all, I say we all, that's not, that's not positioned as everyone, you know, fundamentally for me. Yeah, I've worked with coaches. I've worked with mentors. They've done various different bits with me. And one of them is I've always got my foot on the accelerator. And then that's very quickly followed by the break. It's advice I'm giving myself right now. And it's advice I'd give myself then um, is to take more risks, believe in your capability and just do it. You know, if this word failure does come around and you don't succeed in that, you'll just literally find another way of finding that success. And then when you hit that, you'll want the next thing. So it would be to, for that reason, to take more risks. Excellent. How can people get hold of you, Alex? Easiest way is LinkedIn, very uh, prominent on there. So it's Alex Rawlings. And if you put role selection on, there is unfortunately somebody called Alex Rawlings, who is very strong with languages. He speaks seven different languages fluently and learned them within like a year or something. That is not me. So if you Google that, you will find him. Um, <laughs> school system I haven't got my SEO rating up that well enough yet but he got a lot of uh, prominence but yeah if you put Alex Rawlings Raw Selection you'll see me and it's on uh, LinkedIn I've got a little red circle around my uh, photo as everyone in the business does just to stand out a bit different but that's the easiest way if not you can always email me at alex.rawlings at raw-selection.com if you find my LinkedIn you'll also find how to spell Rawlings and how to um, and uh, and how to contact me all my contact details are on there so uh, nice and easy
0: Alex Rawlings, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Marcus. Really, uh, really great conversation. Really enjoyed it.
0: This is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found it useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel well disposed, then please go to Apple Podcasts, scroll below the fold and find the uh, reviews section and give an honest review. A one, two, three, four, or five-star review is welcome. Give your honest feedback. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.